Let's open up God's Word. We're going to start in the book of Genesis, like we've done pretty much for every message in this series, Brave in the New World. But we're going to look at a number of different topics and passages today. And the subject that we're covering this morning, I, I want to be clear about this. If you have your sermon notes, take them out and, and fill them out today. What we're going to cover today is extremely important. Extremely important. We've talked about gender. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about sex. We've talked about children. Today, we're going to cover the topic of human dignity. Human dignity. Today, I want to address the issues of eugenics, racism, abortion, euthanasia, original sin, and what it means to be made in the image of God. Buckle up, Harvesticator. I got a lot of ground to cover. And all of this is in an attempt to answer this question, this overarching question. What does the Bible teach about human dignity? What does the Bible teach about human dignity? And, and let me say this as we get started this morning. I don't, I don't have an elaborate intro. I'm just going to get right into it. But I do want to say this. We have, as Christians, the greatest foundation for human dignity in the entire world. Better than any other religious holy book. Better than any other ancient document or modern day constitution. We have the greatest asset for, for what it means for our understanding of human dignity. And I want to celebrate that this morning as we get started. You won't find what I'm going to say today in Darwin's Origin of the Species. You won't find it. There's not a case to be made for the sanctity of human life in that book. You won't find what I'm going to say today in the pages of the New Atheists. Their, their conclusions actually diminish the truth of human dignity, not affirm it. You won't even find what I'm going to say today from God's word in a modern day biology textbook. And that's nothing against biology. I like biology. But it's beyond the, the bounds of science to affirm human dignity and the sanctity of human life. So, so part, of, part of, one of, the re, one of the reasons that I love being a Christian is I get to call this God's word. And to see something that's profound and believe it and live it out especially today as it relates to the truth of human dignity. So let's dig in, Harvest Decatur, six things. Write this down as number one. The scriptures, let me be clear. Let's get right after it this morning. The scriptures denounce the practice of eugenics. The scriptures denounce this. And to that you might say, well, what exactly does the Bible say about eugenics? Where does the Bible use that term, Pastor Tony? Well, that, that word is a modern coinage, so you won't find it in your Bible, but the Bible does denounce it indirectly. Some even might say directly because the Bible affirms the sanctity of human life. The Bible says thou shalt not kill in the Ten Commandments. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 9, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Mankind is made in the image of God. And eugenics is the science of taking life and restricting life or the propagation of human life. The Bible tells human beings right after God created them, God tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is the opposite of what eugenics teaches. And besides that, the Bible teaches something 
that eugenics is dead set against. This is chapter 1, verse 27. If you have your Bibles open to Genesis 1, you can read this, or you can read this on the screen. I've, I've quoted this just about in every message I've given on this, in this series, Brave in the New World. You should probably have it memorized by now. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Man didn't evolve from primordial goop. Man didn't evolve from, from apes or monkeys or amoebae. Man was created by God with intentionality and with care, and he was differentiated from the other creatures. He was differentiated from the other animals. Some of y'all might have heard a couple of weeks ago about that family that was hiking in California in the National Park, and it was a family of six, and there was a little boy, a three-year-old little boy that was leading his family on this hike, you know, leading, you know how you do that, and this three-year-old three-year-old little boy that was out in front of the family got attacked by a mountain lion. Did y'all hear about this? Mountain lion got a hold of his neck and started to carry him away, and then the father of this family does what fathers do, and he ran after this child and tried to rescue the child and actually threw a backpack at this mountain lion. Mountain lion, for whatever reason, uh, praise God, let go of this little boy, went to grab that backpack, ran up, in, uh, up in, into a tree, as far as I know, the little boy is fine, but if you're feeling bad for the mountain lion, they euthanized that mountain lion for that. Was that wrong? Should they have done that? That's a mountain lion. That's just what mountain lions do. They stalk and kill prey. Maybe they should have euthanized the little boy and the father for trespassing on that mountain lion's territory. <laughs> Perish the thought, right? But why did they? Why did they do that, Pastor Tony? Why? Why do we? Where's the cat dignity in that? Why the human dignity? It's because of this. Even in our, even in our justice system, even in our national parks, even even among law enforcement, there is a prioritization of human dignity above animal dignity, and that is right. That is right. I don't like to see cats die, but in instances like that. It's right. We have to prioritize that. You might say, well, what does that have to do with eugenics, Pastor Tony? Good question. Let's talk about eugenics. Each and every human being in this world is endowed with dignity by our creator, regardless of race, sex, socioeconomics, education, upbringing, or mental aptitude. Everybody hear me on that? Each and every human being and the sanctity of human life should prioritize at all times human life above animal life and the earth and the planet at all times. Now, do, do I care about animals? Should we take care of animals? Yes, we've been given dominion over animals. Should we take care of our earth and steward it? Yes, we should. But there is a priority of human life. There is a sanctity to human life that there isn't with the rest of the animal kingdom or with the rest of the world. And that is right to prioritize that. Some of you might even be asking a more basic question. What is eugenics, Pastor Tony? Well, eugenics is the belief that some beings are more worthy of life, some human beings are more worthy of life than others. 
Merriam-Webster's calls eugenics, you can read this on the screen, the practice or advocacy of controlled selective breeding of human populations, as by sterilization or other things, to improve the population's genetic composition. If that sounds scary, that's because it is scary, this practice or this ideology. The word eugenics was coined by Charles Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton. Etymologically, it, it means well-born. Eu is a Greek term that means good, and then genes or genes means born. So good genes, well-born. We should support the well-born and, you know, diminish the lesser born is basically the idea behind eugenics. And you might say, who would ever advocate for that, Pastor Tony? Well, you'd be surprised. Historically, lots of people, even well-respected people, have advocated for this. There was actually a massive movement in Europe and in this country at the turn of the 20th century to embrace forced sterilization and controlled breeding among humans. I'm not talking about cows. I'm not talking about emus. I'm talking about human beings. There was, there was a... a, a a force in our country and in other places that was advocating for this. The most famous eugenicist in our country, in our country, was a woman named Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. In her book, The Pivot of Civilization, Sanger actually divided human beings according to their IQ level. And she labeled those who have an IQ below average with, with these terms, idiots, morons, and imbeciles. This is right in her book. In her mind, those human beings who fit into those categories should not populate, should, should be sterilized in order to prevent breeding. She says this, she says, each feeble-minded person, and that's that category, idiots, morons, and imbeciles, each feeble-minded person is a potential source of endless progeny of defect. We prefer the policy of immediate sterilization so that parenthood is absolutely prohibited to the feeble-minded. If that sounds terrifying, it's because it is. And by the way, don't go looking for that book, the, the Pivot of Civilization. Don't go looking for that book in a pan, Planned Parenthood clinic or on their website. You won't find it there. You might wonder what killed the eugenics movement. If it was so popular at the turn of the 20th century, what killed it? What, I mean, it actually didn't get killed, but its momentum got stopped. What stopped that momentum? I'll tell you what stopped its momentum. It was a eugenicist in Germany named Adolf Hitler who believed that the Aryan race was the one true race in the world and that the rest of the races should be exterminated or enslaved. And Hitler killed about six million Jews. He killed countless gypsies as well and mentally handicapped and other inferior people groups after he did that, people started to rethink eugenics. Is this a good idea? Maybe this isn't a good idea. By the way, the eugenics movement is not dead. It's just morphed into other stuff. In our day, it's in the culture of death with things like abortion and euthanasia. Talk about that in just a second. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Here's another reason I love the Bible. The scriptures prohibit attitudes of racism. The scriptures prohibit attitudes of racism. Let me, just, let me just say two things about that and just link racism to the eugenics program. One of Sanger's objectives with birth control, with sterilization, eventually abortion, was to eliminate weaker and less evolved racial groups. 
That was part of her agenda. And the eugenics program was very much a racist enterprise. It wasn't just Hitler who saw the Aryan race as superior to the other racial and ethnic groups around the world. Many, quote unquote, intellectuals in that day were of a similar mind. They just didn't take it to its logical and bloody conclusion. But, but another thing that people don't take seriously is that this, this race-based eugenics that was so popular at the turn of the 20th century is an inevitable outworking of Darwinian evolution. If you believe in Darwinian evolution, you know, the strong eat the weak, right? Natural selection. Then why wouldn't the stronger, more evolved people of the species eliminate those who are less evolved? It's just a natural outworking of that theory. Many people are unaware that Darwin wrote a book. Most people know Darwin wrote Origin of the Species. Some of y'all might have even read that. But his other less popular book, The Descent of Man, implicitly supports eugenics and the policies of Hitler. Let me show you an example of this. Darwin wrote this. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the stronger races throughout the world. That's the logical end result of Darwinian evolution. And, and Hitler took, took hold of that, and he's like, well, let's just expedite that. Let's just kill them quicker. And that's what he did. Now, as we look to the Bible, let's turn our attention to the Bible. How is the Bible different from that? How does the presentation of humanity differ from what we see in Darwinian evolution, eugenics, these other things? Why, according to the Bible, is racism wrong? Why is it unbiblical? Why is the Bible the best ammunition against racism of all the ancient books of the world? Here's why. Turn with me to Genesis 10. If you're in Genesis 1, just flip over a few pages. Let me show you this. In Genesis 1, God created the world. He created the first human beings. He created Adam and Eve. Then in Genesis 6 through 9, actually Genesis 3, we had the fall of man sent into our world. Man became increasingly wicked. Genesis 6 through 9, God destroys all of humanity because of our profound wickedness. And the only survivors of the flood were Noah and his three sons, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and the wives of, of his three sons. So eight people survived the flood. And in Genesis 10, we get, what, we get what's called the table of nations for all the peoples of the world, all peoples derived from one of Noah's three sons and from Noah himself. So in Genesis 10, verse 1, it says this, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. These are his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So what follows here in Genesis 10 is a delineation of what's called the 70 nations or the table of nations. All of the nations of the world derive from Genesis 10 and from these three sons. In verses 2 through 5, Moses gives us the sons of Japheth. In verses 6 through 20, Moses gives us the sons of Ham. In verses 21 through 31, Moses gives us the sons of Shem. And all the people of the earth can find their ancestry traced back to these 70 nations and to these three sons. For most of you in this room, most of you are part of what's called the line of Japheth. You're Japhethite. And I, I know that because the description here of the coastlands makes that clear. Look at uh, I'll read verses 2 through 5. You guys can see if I can say these names correctly. The sons of Japheth. So these are our forefathers, if you're Japhethite. Gomer, Gomer Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiraz. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. 
the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. Whew, all right, okay, how'd they go? It was better when I practiced that earlier. You guys are making me nervous. Look at verse 5, though. This is what I want to key in on. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nation. That reference to the coastland peoples is a reference to the coasts of Greece and Spain and Britain and Ireland. Everything on that map that's, you know, north and then also west of the promised land. So northwest, this is Moses riding to the Israelites coming into the promised land. So that's his orientation. So if that's your heritage on those coastlands, even all the way up to the coastland of, of Britain and Ireland and Scotland, then you are Japheth, Japhethite. So if you have an Italian ancestry, if you have a Slavic ancestry like my wife, if you are Scots-Irish through and through like myself, this is you. This is your heritage. So the Japhethites were located west, north and west. The Hamites were located south of the promised land in what is now, you know, modern-day Africa. That's green there on that map if you can distinguish between green and yellow. And then also it included parts of the promised land because Canaan was a son of Ham. So these are the Hamites. These are those who have a heritage from Africa. Also some research would show that those in the Far East in China also are Hamite from the Hamite clan. So if you have, if you have an African heritage, if you have an Asian heritage, if you have an Eskimo heritage coming across the Bering Strait from Alaska, to, from Russia to Alaska, if you have a Native American heritage, which some of you probably do. If you've ever done 23andMe, you realize that we're all kind of mixed up together. Supposedly, I have 0.6% African blood, and, and I like that. That's cool. I mean, there, there is a, a mixture of this. If, if that's you, then you're, you're Hamite. And then thirdly, there were the Shemites. Where did the Shemites go? They stayed right in Israel, right in the Middle East, right around the Promised Land. The Shemites, of course, became the Jews and the Arabs. That's why we use that term anti-Semitic. Semitic comes from this term, Shemite. And that, so that's just a broad sweep of, of how all the races spread across the world in Genesis chapter 10. Now, here's my point with all of this. If, the, if this is true, Genesis 10 is true, if we all originate from Adam and Eve, and then also we all originate from Noah and his wife, how can you be racist? Right? We all belong to each other. We all have the same source. Let me, let me say it a little more forcibly. Racism, according to the Bible, is nonsensical. It's nonsense. We all originate from the same source. You, to, to hate somebody because of their color or because of their culture or because of whatever is nonsensical. You come from the same source that they do. Darwinism, by the way, doesn't teach that. Darwinism teaches that some members of the human race are more evolved than others, and therefore they're not worthy of survival. How do you combat racism when you have a worldview, a belief system like that? You guys remember that song we used to sing as kids? Red and yellow, black and white, they are what? Precious in his sight. That song is true and right and good, and I'm glad I sang it as a kid. And there, there is, and I don't want to diminish this, there is a remarkable diversity in this world. I love diversity. 
I have diversity in my family. I'm Scots-Irish. My wife is Croatian. Praise the Lord. Love that diversity. I've got some African blood, according to 23andMe. Sonia's got some Jewish blood, according to 23andMe. That's just wild to me to think that. So it's, God loves diversity. But, but we need to know this, too. This is Paul from Acts 17 when he's preaching at Mars Hill in Athens. He said, the Lord made from one man every nation of mankind to live over the face of the earth. I don't know if Paul's talking about one man Adam or one man Noah. It could be either one. Having determined allotted periods for the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God loves diversity. Okay, I want to I emphasize as it relates to racism, I want to emphasize how there is unity among us as human beings, but there is diversity and God loves diversity. God, let me say it this way. God loves it when Japhethites, Hamites, and Shemites all worship together. And in fact, there's a picture of that in eternity in the book of Revelation. When every tribe, tongue, nation, and people gather together at the throne room of God and worship God, that's what we're going to. How can you be racist when you know we're going towards that? It's nonsensical. For a Christian, anyway, it's nonsensical. I have a good friend that I went to seminary with. Sonia knows who I'm talking about. A good friend who, you know, we had some great talks. And he's, he's from South Africa, and he's biracial. And if you know anything about South Africa, you know the, the problems that that country has endured with racial strife and so forth and so you know, he told me something once that made a lasting impact upon me in my ministry. And he said this, he says, Christians shouldn't just preach against racism. He said, Christians need to celebrate diversity in the church. That was profound to me. And I've tried to do that throughout my ministry. Not just preach against racism, but celebrate the diverse, diversity in the church. Communism tried to force diversity. It didn't work. There's a real diversity here that's going to go on into eternity in the church. Some of my greatest moments in life have been to go to other cultures, people that look different than, from me, and, and gather with them and worship the Lord with them. Some of my greatest memories have involved that in life. And that's just a little foretaste of eternity. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in God's sight. So, And, and I want to say this too, you know, does that mean, oh, Pastor Tony, so we're unified as human beings. Does that mean I can't be proud of my Hispanic heritage or my, my Italian or German heritage? No, you can be proud of that. I'm, I'm very proud of my Scottish heritage. I'll tell you all about it later if you want me to. But that can't ever be prioritized among this because the blood of Jesus is the thing that unifies us as believers. That's more important than any quote-unquote blood lineage that we have, even blood bonds as brothers and sisters. By the way, just a reminder, in case you didn't know this, the church worldwide is predominantly Asian and African today. Did you know that? And it's growing more and more that way. It's not North American or European. That's what, in other words, it's not Japhethite right now. More so, it's, it's Hamite. And someday God is going to gather from all the four corners of the world, all of his believers from all of human history, and we're going to worship at the throne room of Jesus together. 
Go ahead and write this down as number three. The Bible doesn't allow for eugenics. The Bible doesn't allow for racism. The Bible also doesn't allow, say it stronger than that, the scriptures forbid the practice of abortion and euthanasia. Let's get into this. I preached a couple messages from Psalm 139 last summer. So I addressed this issue directly. Let me reiterate some points from that message. Psalm 139 verse 13 says this. This is David writing. He says, for you formed my inward parts, says David. Literally, my kidneys in Hebrew. You formed my kidneys. And the kidneys in Hebrew thought represented not just your physical body, but also your, the metaphysical reality of your soul. You made my soul, is what David is saying. Physically and metaphysically, you, you made who I am. David says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. The word knitted could be translated, translated intertwined or plated. God wove us together in our mother's womb like an embroidered quilt. He stitched us together. And if you think about the intricacies of the human body, it's just a marvel that the elaborate ways in which our, our nervous system and our, 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 our skeletal system and our circulatory system all come together in your body. Did you do that? I didn't do that. Your mama didn't do that, not really. Something else formed that. In fact, did you know, Christian, that there in your circulatory system right now, there are 60,000 miles of track in your body that God put there. And, and all of that is full of arteries and capillaries and veins. The only time we ever think about that is when our cholesterol level's too high. But God put that there. He stitched us together in that way. He knitted us together inside of our mother's womb. He laid that track in our body. And yet, an untrained, unlicensed abortionist pretending to be a healthcare professional can come and vacuum a human being out of a womb and dispose of it like medical waste. That is not right. Psalm 139 is without a doubt the most pro-life, anti-abortion passage in the Bible, but it's not the only one. I already said, thou shalt not kill. Job 31.15 says, did not he who made me in the womb make him, and did not one fashion us in the womb? Isaiah 44 verse 2 says, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 Yahweh tells Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I want to be clear about this. The Bible does not allow for abortion. Because abortion is the murder of a pre-born child made in the image of God. And I've heard Christians, I've heard well-meaning Christians say things like, well, you know, abortion is complicated. It's not. It's the murder of a preborn person. It's not complicated. Let me be clear about this too. Let me dial this down a little bit, my intensity. You need to know too that abortion is not an unforgivable sin. Don't make that mistake. And abortionists are not unforgivable. I should remind you that Psalm 139, that passage that I just read, was written by an adulterer named David. And he wasn't just an adulterer, he was a murderer. He plotted to kill the wife of Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite. He was a murderer. 
Was David beyond redemption because of that? No. No, in fact, centuries after David died, God could still call him a man after my own heart. So let's keep that in mind as we oppose, yes, oppose the culture of death in our country. We are not just pro-life, we are pro-grace as Christians. I have seen in my life, and those of you, I'm 41, some of, those, some of you who are about my age, you've seen a transition in our country and in our world. There's been more, a movement towards pro-life ideas, and I think that's great, and I praise God for that. I think that actually is probably a result of 3D imaging and other forms of technology. It's, it's increasingly difficult to hold to abortion as a thinkable act. It really is, and I pray that the Lord would just continue that, and that would move right into legislation. But here's something that scares me, that, you know, God, there, there's a sanctity of human life, and that, that goes for the beginning and also the end of human life, not just the beginning. And I've also seen throughout my lifetime an increase in legislation that supports ideas, excuse me, of euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. That's become more prevalent. And, and I want to be clear about that, too. Life is given by God, and life is taken away from God, by God. And we don't. The Bible does not allow for suicide. The Bible does not allow for physician-assisted suicide. I think actually the arguments for physician-assisted suicide are very dangerous. So right now in our country, there are nine states that allow for physician-assisted suicide, California, Colorado, Hawaii, Montana, Maine, New Jersey, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. And that's, that's shocking to me. When I was a kid, Jack Kevorkian was a psycho. We all thought he was crazy. Now we have nine states in our country that legalize what he used to do. How did that happen? Something, something's off here. And, and the problem with euthanasia, as I see it, is that it, it compromises human dignity, that same human dignity that we argue for as it relates to abortion. And when you start giving people the right to die, eventually that becomes a right to kill. And I think the long-term effects of that will be tragic and should be sobering for us. Think about it. Let's just think about this for a second. If you start normalizing euthanasia, if you start moving from what's called voluntary euthanasia to involuntary euthanasia, and I think that's an inevitable drift if you embrace this, that's going to take us to some dark places. If you start allowing family members or doctors or medical professionals to determine who lives and who dies, Who's going to protect the rights of aging Americans when their health care needs become too expensive? Who's going to protect them? Who's going to protect aging parents from children who want to accelerate their departure so they can expedite their inheritance? Who's going to protect the aged and the weak and the medically disabled when people accuse them of being a drain on resources in our society. I just heard a few days ago, actually in a podcast, that there's a company in Canada. Canada has legalized euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide. And there's a company that actually harvests organs. And so this company has consultants that go out and encourage people. They're coming under scrutiny now because they're encouraging people to go through physician-assisted suicide so that they can harvest their body parts and use them and advance their business. That is twisted. I can't believe they allow that. And, and I think this stuff is going to get worse. I told you a few months ago that, you know, the country of Iceland, 
They, they celebrated the fact that they no longer have Down syndrome as part of society. But they celebrated that not because they found a cure for Down syndrome. They, they celebrate that because every child pre-born that was diagnosed positively with Down syndrome was aborted. That's how they eliminated the problem. We just abort all the babies that have a positive Down syndrome uh, case in the womb. That is not a solution. And, and, and the media just fawned all over that, like, wow, what a great solution. That is eugenics. Why do we celebrate that? And I fear in our country, too, and other places, that the same thing happening, not just at the beginning of life, but at the end of life. How long will it be before we stop, start adopting similar policies in America for the aged and for the weak and for the, the mentally handicapped? They're a drain on resources. Physician-assisted suicide. You see, the really, the really dangerous thing about Hitler is not that he was some, some great anomaly in world history, just some crazy maniac. None of us are like him. The, the scary thing about Hitler is there were a lot of people out there that had these same ideas. They just didn't have the power and the follow-through that Hitler did to do what he did, to take it to its logical conclusion. The strong eat the weak. Hitler says, we're the strong. Let's eat the weak. Natural selection. Let's just expedite that. That is the danger. And by the way, do you know who the great, this, that's the danger with Darwinian evolution, by the way. Do you know who the great opponent to Darwinian evolution was in the 1800s? It was a bishop, an Anglican bishop named Samuel Wilberforce. He was the son of the abolitionist William Wilberforce who spent the bulk of his life trying to eliminate the slave trade. And Samuel Wilberforce, he tried to warn Darwin about the, the conclusions of his theory. He, he told Darwin that his, his ideas will actually support the slave trade, won't argue against it. Darwin, just so you know, Darwin was actually a, a fairly decent man. He was an abolitionist. He didn't believe in slavery, supposedly. He, he was, a, in many ways, a moral and decent man, but his ideas were dangerous. And Samuel Wilberforce tried to warn him, tried to tell him that his theories would actually fuel the slave trade. And Darwin wouldn't listen. To all this, you might say, sheesh, Pastor Tony, this this is some scary stuff. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to navigate this this brave new world that we're in? Well, we're going to denounce racism, abortion, euthanasia, Darwinian evolution. We're going to denounce these things, but we're also going to affirm something. And I I want you to put this in your back pocket and pull it out regularly all the time because this is the best thing that the Bible has. This is the best thing that the world has that affirms the truth of human dignity. Write this down as number four. The scriptures, our scriptures, our Bible affirms the truth of Imago Dei. The image of God, imago, Latin for image, Dei, Latin for God. The scriptures affirm that men and women are made in the image of God. And because if we are made in the image of God, we are all, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of culture, granted dignity by God. Tell me if you've heard this before, Harvest. Tell me if this sounds familiar. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You ever heard that before? 
That's the declaration of independence right there. Where did they get that language? Did they just create that out of whole cloth? Where did, where did they get those ideas? The founding fathers didn't create that out of whole cloth. They, they borrowed that language from Christianity and from the Bible. And some people might say, well, yeah, yeah, you know, but the founding fathers, they weren't all Christians, Pastor Tony. I know that. They weren't all Christians, Orthodox Christians, Evangelical Christians, but they were all God-fearers. There was not one atheist among the founding fathers. There was not. And they knew Scripture and Christianity, even if they didn't embrace its tenets, it was the air that they breathed. They all knew Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. And what does that mean that we're created in God's image? Have y'all ever thought about that? What does that suggest that I, I'm Imago Dei? I, I'm an image bearer. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, trying to make sense of that. What does that mean? I'll tell you. I'll give you six things, but I, I want to, before we do that, just look up here for a second. Every single one of you in this room, I want you to hear me say this. You are an image bearer. God created you in, your, in his image. You have dignity as a human person. Before God, he created you with dignity as an image bearer. What does that mean, Pastor Tony? What does that mean? Put some handles on that for me. Six things, quickly here. First of all, you have an eternal soul. You actually think about eternity. My cat never thinks about eternity. Never. And... This is biblical, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. The Bible says God has put eternity in the hearts of man. The Bible says, this is the Old Testament even, Daniel chapter 12, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Bible affirms that you will live forever. You have eternity in you. just depends. Are you going to live for eternity with God or apart from God? Talk more about that in a second. Just to be clear, I feel like I need to be clear in this day. When Sparky dies, he's going in the ground and he's done. Are you all with me? When Fifi, your poodle, dies, she's done. She's in the ground. When Stinky, your lizard, dies, he's going in the ground and he's done. Is everybody clear about that? My dad pulled me aside. This isn't in my notes. It just came to mind as I'm preaching. My dad pulled me aside when I was like eight, and I had my dog Tasha. I loved her more than anything in the world, this little dog of mine. And he gave me this speech, and I might have cried, but it was good. And he was affirming human, affirming human dignity for me. Write this down as number two. You have a moral conscience. This is another aspect of our being made in the image of God. There is an instinctive code that animals have, and it's, it's, part of our, it's part of their DNA. And some of their actions are honorable, honorable. Some of their actions are dishonorable. You know, I know how pets work. But they don't have a moral conscience. Not really. They have instinct. 
They don't have the ability to reason about what is right and what's wrong. They just do whatever their instinct tells them to do. And, and some of you might disagree with me. You say, oh, no, Pastor Tony, my dog knows the difference between right and wrong. No, your dog knows the difference between getting a treat and not getting a treat. That's what your dog knows. And, and sure, they're smart. They know how to get a treat. Good for them. And I, I want you all to hear, I love animals. I really do. I love animals. I love dogs. I love my cat sometimes. But, but there's a difference. There's a categorical difference between the way that they reason and then we reason. Y- y'all remember Pavlov? Y'all remember Pavlov's rule, law, whatever it is? You know, they, it rings the bell, puts out the food. The dog starts to salivate. Eventually, he just rings the bell and the dog salivates. It's just, it's just behavioral. I think Pavlov is right with that. But he was wrong thinking that that's how humans are too. We're just behavioral creatures. We just do whatever our instinct tells us. That's not right. That's not what the Bible says about us. God gave human beings a will, a moral will. He gave us the ability to reason. And, you know, when we don't obey, here's the bad side of that. When we don't obey God, we're morally culpable before him for our sin and for our actions. God didn't create other creatures like that. God didn't give other creatures this book. God didn't write the moral law, his moral law on the hearts of other creatures, just us. God didn't put his Holy Spirit in your dog. Y'all with me? He put his Holy Spirit in you if you're a believer. And that's different. Write this down, number three. You have a God-like personality. You have a God-like personality. You are not God, but you are made in the image of God. You are like God in this way. And, you know, let's just be clear. When you're made in God's image, that doesn't mean you take on some physical form like God has a physical form. God has arms, so we have arms. No, God is a spirit. God does not have a corporeal body like we do. So this has to do with something metaphysical, not physical, us being made in the image of God. We have personhood, like God has personhood. We have a personality. Man has reason rather than instinct. Man has the ability to think abstractly. Man has the ability to appreciate beauty and to feel emotion and to be morally conscious of his surroundings. Man has the ability to relate to one another and needs relationship with one another and craves fellowship among other people. I think that's an aspect of God's, God's Trinitarian being. God for eternity, eternity past and eternity future is Trinity. And he has fellowship and love and relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created us and we have that same kind of desire and need for community, not just with one another, but also with the God who created us. That makes us different. Write this down, number four. You have a God-like ability to create. You, not ex nihilo, you don't create out of nothing like God does, but you do have a creative capacity. Let, let me illustrate it this way. When was, huh, everybody listening? When was the last time you saw a pack of wolves design and build a skyscraper? You ever seen that? I paid money to see that. That's not happening. When was the last time you saw a rat paint a portrait of another rat? The Mona Lisa of the rats. That doesn't happen. 
we have this, I, I think that's actually why we like movies where that kind of thing happens, you know, like, like Stuart Little or Ratatouille or even like the Narnia stuff. It's like so fantastical. It's entertaining. Animals, they have personalities like us. That isn't how God created them. That's just in the movies. God didn't endow animals with the ability to create or engineer or design or play instruments or write novels or sculpt or act or compose. These are human endeavors. That's an aspect of God's character that's reflected in us. And I'll be honest, God doesn't give this creative ability equally among all of us, right? Some of you are more creative than others, more creative than me, and that's good. My wife is that way, and I praise God for that. That's an aspect of the image of God that she reflects, that shines out of her, this just insatiable desire to create. Number five, you have God-like ability to communicate. What's the first thing that God did in day one? What did he do? It's the first thing he did. He spoke. He spoke things into existence. And then after he created Adam and Eve, he started talking with them, and they were talking back. He didn't walk in the cool of the day with any other animal, any other mammal. He did with Adam and with Eve. He gave them the ability to speak like like he speaks. Not exactly, but similar. And we have the ability to speak to one another. We, We don't grunt at one another all the time. We can articulate ourselves most of the time. Some of you might say, well, what about... I hear these objections all the time. What about dolphins, Pastor Tony? Can't they communicate? What about humpback whales? I would say that the clicking and the groaning of those animals, along with the barking of the dog and the purring of your cat, all of those are just slight, inferior forms of communication compared to humans. When was the last time you saw a dolphin read a book? or write a novel? When was the last time you saw a whale quote Shakespeare? That's not happening. And it's, it's what, I don't know what, I don't know how whales communicate, but probably the most thing that they say to one another is there's some plankton over there, let's go get it. I don't think it's any more sophisticated than that, even if it's that sophisticated. You have the ability God-like ability to communicate. And one more thing, you have the God-like ability to rule. We are vice regents of a kind. That's how God created Adam and Eve to rule. Remember in Genesis 1? Let us make man in our own image, says God, and let them have dominion over the fish and the birds and the livestock and over all the earth. Later in verse 28, says this, God blessed them. God blessed human beings. And God said to them, be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over fish and birds and all the living things that move upon the earth. So there's two commands here. You're to subdue and you're to have dominion. And that's the language of kingship. That's the language of ruling and of stewarding. That's what God has called us to do. And in ancient Babylon, the ideas for the ancient Babylonian religion was that man was created by the gods, plural, in order to provide food and sustenance for the gods. So they were supposed to work the land as slaves to the gods and then bring all their food to the gods so that the gods can consume them so that the gods could be lazy, basically. Now, I don't know, that's not really a god if he needs human provision in order to survive. 
That's not how the Bible speaks about God and his creation of us. God has given us, as human beings, charge of the terrestrial world. God has given us the responsibility as stewards and as caretakers of the world that he has given us. We're to cultivate it for our needs. We're not to exploit it. We're not to destroy it or to greedily spoil it for selfish gain. We're to be caretakers of it. We're to cultivate it. We steward it on behalf of the creator. And by the way, just one more thing. We're talking about the image of God. There's, there's, there's a clue in that verse, in verse 28. See that on the screen? There's also one other thing that we can do that no other animal, no other created being can do. We can actually bless God back. Did you know that? You know what a privilege that is? When, when God created man, and, and throughout the Bible, God blessed them. God blessed them. God blesses, blesses, blesses. God's constantly blessing. That, that word in Hebrew is the word barak. And there's actually places in the Old Testament where the, that verb is used of men blessing God. I'll give you an example of that. Don Miller used this yesterday in his message. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. God barocks us. We can barock him back. That is amazing. We're the only animals can, that can do that. We're the only animals that have souls. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Here's why that's so amazing. God created you. You can't create him back. God blesses you, and you can bless him back. What a wonderful privilege that we have, that we can do that. God provides for us. We can't provide for him. God saves us. We can't save him. But God blesses us, and we can bless him back. You should do that. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Go ahead and write this down as number five. These last two will come quicker, I promise. The scriptures acknowledge the presence of original sin. So we got Imago Dei. We're made in the image of God. But then there's also this thing called original sin. And some of you might say, wow, Pastor Tony, we're God's image bearers. That's great. Why are we so wicked sometimes? If we are God-like, why do we kill each other sometimes? You ever thought about that? Why do we, if we're made in the image of God, why do we come up with evil stuff like eugenics and abortion and euthanasia? Here's why. Because Genesis 1 and 2 is followed by Genesis 3. And the sin of Adam and Eve and the effects of that sinfulness has been passed down to you and me. We'll get into this in the book of Romans in a few weeks. Romans 5. It's been passed down to all of us and is planted deep inside the confines of every man and woman's heart. Original sin. We are made in the image of God, but we are tainted by original sin. And there's some confusion about this original sin. Christopher Yuan, he talks about this in his book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. You can read this on the screen. He says, many confuse original sin with the first actual sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. But it's not the same. Rather, original sin is the result of that first sin, a consequence with extensive moral ramifications. Regrettably, every human being is born with this sinful condition. No, no, Pastor Tony, my little boy was born innocent. 
No, he wouldn't. You'll find out soon enough. We all have this. So here's the problem. We got, we got, this, we got this huge problem. We really do. We're made in the image of God, and part of that is an eternity in our souls. We're going to live forever, but we've got this thing called sin that's a part of our heritage as being the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and that sin actually separates us from a holy God. So we're going to live forever, but we're going to live forever separated from a holy God. He is holy. We are unholy. He is righteous. We are unrighteous. Do you see the problem here? This is a, this is a massive dilemma. This is a huge problem. I'm going to live forever. You're going to live forever, but I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, and we're going to be separated because of our sin from God forever in a place called hell. What are we going to do about that, Pastor Tony? This is the greatest problem in a human experience. What do we do about it? How are we going to solve that? You're not going to solve it. We just spare you the exercise of trying to solve it on your own. You are not going to solve it, not on your own, not in your sinful state. But a true and a better human being who is untainted by sin and yet can still represent us as part of humanity, he's going to solve it for us. And he's going to come to earth He has come to earth. Take on human flesh and die on on a cross for our sins so that we might be eternally reconciled to our creator. Y'all know about this? I've been trying to, getting ready to preach Romans here in a few weeks. I've been trying to memorize Romans 3, 21 through 31 just to get ready, get my heart pumped. And, you know, ever since I was a kid, I shared this with you guys previously, Romans 3.23 has just been in my mind. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's it. In a nutshell, our predicament. And I'm so glad that Romans 3.23 is followed by Romans 3.24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because of your sin, Harvest Decatur, you are eternally separated from God, destined for hell. But your faith in Jesus pays for your sin, and you can live forever with the God of the universe. You are reconciled to the God of the universe. Pastor Tony, that's too good to be true. It's fantastic. We don't deserve it. But I hope you believe it. I hope you embrace by faith Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can write this down as number six. Here's the last point concerning human dignity. The scriptures reveal our need for divine and human reconciliation. And that happens through our faith in Christ. Look, I know I've covered a lot of ground today. We've looked at a lot of different topics. Maybe your head is spinning right now. But if you haven't listened to anything I've said up to this point, I want you to hear this. This is the most important thing I'm going to say. You are a sinner. You are made in the image of God, but you are a sinner. And because of your sin, you are eternally separated from God. But by faith in the finished work 
of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and not just his death, but his resurrection. Ryan said it earlier, Jesus rose from the dead. Your faith in that reality saves you and allows you to live for eternity with the Lord. I want to live forever with the Lord. I want to live with him forever. And you know what? I'm going to live with him forever because of my faith in Jesus. And I want you to go there with me. I want you to have the salvation that was purchased by Jesus at the cross.